Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the Coalition Coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode 15 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. Today I have with me Carol Reed, who is a certified prevention specialist. Carol graduated from UMass Boston and worked after graduate school as an addictions counselor in a local hospital treatment program. She is also licensed in the state of Massachusetts as a school counselor for grades 5 through 12, and she's been involved in community prevention since 2009. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Carol Reed. Welcome to episode 15 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. I'm your host, Amanda Decker, and in this episode, I have the chance to have a conversation with Carol Reed from the Needham Public Health Department in Massachusetts. She's licensed in school counseling for grades 5 through 12 in Massachusetts, and during the past nine years, she worked in the Needham Public Health Department primarily managing federal grants for community prevention. So welcome, Carol. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm really excited. Carol's one of the first people that I had the privilege to meet when I took on the role as a drug-free communities coordinator. And I have a fun story uh, for the audience. We actually met up in um, down in uh, Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and we had uh, just kind of made acquaintances then, and I remembered you from when I moved up here to Avon, but we met because we had a group of young students who came from Massachusetts down to Capitol Hill to speak with some of our uh, lawmakers about substance use and what's going on in their communities, and they were really disappointed because they didn't have the opportunity. I guess the... um, The schedule was too full for the representatives that were there to accommodate the youth. And Carol walked into their offices and just said, there's no way that they're not going to meet with you kids. You came all the way down here. We're getting you an appointment. And you did. Um, So the kids were so excited. Uh, You got them a couple minutes to talk uh, with one of the aides and also get a picture. So I'll never forget that. Then when I came over to Avon, you know, we... Uh, became friends and I've been working at this all together ever since so yeah we appreciate collaborating Mm. right our town's uh, borders uh, intersect our kids have cousins and family and friends across all of Massachusetts so it's vital that we collaborate and share resources in our work to support the whole region sure your collaboration's been vital and uh, to me, and you've been a great uh, mentor and teacher too. So we're all learning and growing sure. from connecting with each other in this work. So true. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this work and why you're so passionate about it. I got involved in community level prevention uh, through an opportunity as a part time employee in the Needham Public Health Department. 
Um, I was hired in Needham after um, working in addictions counseling at NORCAP in Norwood and also going back to grad school and getting a license in school counseling. And that combination of working with youth, understanding family systems, and then working with adults and addiction mm -hmm. enabled me to do uh, work through their health department and community outreach and education around substance use, mental health awareness. Um, the community had experienced loss through uh, young adult suicide as well as traffic fatality um, in, related to alcohol. So Needham is a very uh, progressive community who committed before I started with mm -hmm. them to uh, start a suicide prevention coalition and uh, provide information and education to the community uh, about mental health and substance use to be able to mitigate the stigma um, sure. and teach people that addiction is a disease and mental health uh, conditions can be treated. These are often barriers to people reaching out to getting help. So the department was very committed to having someone work in the community um, to, to share that information and build the knowledge. That being said, during that same year, I identified an opportunity of a federal grant called Drug-Free Communities, funded by the Office of National Drug Control Policy in partnership with SAMHSA, the Substance Use Mental Health Services Administration. Needham applied for that grant, and we were fortunate to be awarded. And at that time, I started to work full-time and learn about community-level prevention and mm -hmm. what works. And the way I talk about the work that we do, Amanda, is for people to think about tobacco and how many years ago we understood the health impact, the detrimental consequences of smoking, yet it wasn't just enough to share that science and the health information. Um, it, it didn't um, motivate all people to behavior change. So what we learned through the tobacco initiative is to work through the lens of the public health model. We look at risk and protective factors. We wanted to target um, the risk factors that are indicated in smoking and then enhance the protective factors that keep people um, from making um, negative choices to make positive. That being said, it's easily explained by saying with the public health lens, we looked at blocking access and availability mm -hmm. to cigarettes. And we did that through policies and enforcement. If you had told me years ago you couldn't smoke in a restaurant or, or in, an, in you know, a work environment, many people um, shrugged their shoulders. So right. the issue was to work through policies to change the environment of smoking and then that worked to shift the social norm and the community norms around smoking but what we know through policies and enforcement using the media to educate and advocate and then that shift in community norms that doesn't happen mm -hmm. by one group right so how that happens is to engage various community stakeholders and leaders 
And that's what the coalition model is. So in my work with underage alcohol and other drug use, we are following that model to engage different members of the community to um, understand the risk and protective factors of alcohol and other drug use, marijuana prescription drugs by youth, but by engaging different members of the community, educating them on the risk and the health impact, we're hoping that they will support the policy changes sure. that we know work to impact that access. So it's a long explanation, but best told through the lens of how various comprehensive strategies worked to impact tobacco. Today in Massachusetts, uh, we have some of the lowest tobacco rates in the country due to the fact we were the first to um, block sales to mm -hmm. anyone under 21 in Needham through our health department, as well as ban um, access in CVS and Walgreens through healthcare facilities. So Massachusetts, Needham through public health regulations in Massachusetts has been a leader through these policies, health regulations to engage and enlighten, to make changes in use and change people's perception sure. and empower people to all get on board to make better policy decisions. Yeah. Do you think that that was a big shift for you going from the treatment and the things and, and just tell us a little bit about that and you know what was that shift like? So when we look at prevention we can do individual strategies, we can do strategies targeting um, families and friends and schools and communities. So I looked at treatment in in the target of an individual at risk. That was um, a one-on-one -on -one relationship when people have already been impacted and affected by substance use. And we all have people we love and care about that have navigated substance dependence and addiction and they need and deserve that one-on-one -on -one support with good therapy, valuable treatment programs, and groups mm -hmm. to be able to stay uh, sober one mm -hmm. day at a time. The shift to answer your question is now I work on the community level, mm -hmm. not on the individual level, to make the communities healthier and safer so all people can make healthier decisions. Mm -hmm. So in our work, sometimes we use the analogy of a healthy fish going into a polluted pond. As much as we can keep our children or our young adults safe and healthy, if they're in an environment that has risk factors indicated in using substances, like easy access, many liquor stores or restaurants selling to minors, easy access to unauthorized prescription drugs, um, policies that, that aren't safeguarding their health, it makes it tougher mm -hmm. for youth that are prone or at risk to move away from the choice of substance. Sure, and I'm sure that you've encountered a lot of challenges along the way of just 
people who didn't quite understand or or whatnot. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you might have had, maybe ways that you overcame those challenges? I feel every day we need to work in our field to educate people with the science and research we have regarding dependence and addiction as a disease and not a moral failing or a choice. Um, and that I feel has been the barrier for people to reach out and ask for help. Um, so I know we're all working to mitigate the stigma of addiction and to encourage families and people that are navigating uh, these challenges to reach out to ask for help and to make make our communities more positive as far as recovery services mm. what the challenges I face in policy change is that policy change for example um, one of the policy changes the CDC values and has evidence um, through alcohol access prevention is limiting hours and days of sale, limiting the number of licensed alcohol outlets in a community, that's called density, um, having mandatory in-person licensee training the challenge in getting those policies passed, Amanda, is that often community leaders don't want to burden mm -hmm. business leaders. So we're working to share the fact that these strategies can work and they're not going to impact people's profitability. Sure. In fact, the, the skills that we're trying to give them or the parameters we're trying to give them are reasonable, they're proven, they're evidence-based, that they impact youth access. And actually, those three strategies I mentioned um, are known and proven through the CDC and um, other research bodies to impact excessive alcohol use. Mm -hmm. And what excessive alcohol use, EAU, is um, underage drinking, uh, binge drinking mm -hmm. for any age, drinking while pregnant, and um, uh, chronic heavy drinking. Mm -hmm. All those issues um, impact people's health. They impact people's safety on driving and road safety. They impact people's mental health. And we have so much data now about the actual cost to our corporations, our society, with trying to deliver medical care for people that are excessively drinking and lost work productivity. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is to communicate what we know as facts, to motivate the decision makers to support these policies again, as we did with tobacco, that back then were just so unique to have a policy in a community that said you can't smoke in a restaurant right. or you can't smoke on an airplane. The policy to take tobacco vending machines out of office buildings, all those policies were, were challenging for community leaders and they caused a lot of discourse 
yet in the end, we were able to have people collaborate and implement those policies and the positive impact to healthcare cost um, and uh, the lung and, and chronic health issues are indisputable. That's why I talk about this work through that lens mm -hmm. because people can understand and remember, oh wow, they were tough policies to change, but when we look through the public health model, um, we know it's workable and we keep pushing forward. Right. Um, sometimes I hear the argument back too from community members, well, we just need to educate the kids to make good choices. And if we just raise some taxes, you know, we can take that money and we'll educate the kids and that will solve the problem. But I think what you're saying is you're pointing out that it affects so many different layers of the community and opening people's eyes to see that you're never going to have enough dollars know to go ahead and solve this problem with education it has to be so much broader than that mm -hmm. and I think just in what's happening in Massachusetts right now in regards to a new drug industry uh, with the whole marijuana piece it's really interesting to hear communities talk about well this will bring in new revenue and new taxes and forgetting about the costs of what that does to your community when you have young people use. And there's also been a lot of debate whether bringing in uh, more marijuana is going to increase youth use. Do you just want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing around that and just what's happening in Massachusetts right now? Our work is based um, through the strategic prevention framework and we um, follow um, a, a protocol that we look at our data, we look at quantitative data, and we look at qualitative data. Qualitative data is focus groups with youth and adults and um, informant uh, community stakeholder interviews. Quantitative data is the surveys that our youth take and they report their use rates, they report their perceptions, they report their behaviors. And we know through the surveys that we're grateful to have in Massachusetts that when surveys are anonymous and they're voluntary and they're well vetted, they're quite accurate. So we take the qualitative data and the quantitative data and we look at what our um, presenting problems are and we make decisions based on data. So what I'm currently working on is underage alcohol, but what we found recently over the past six years, Amanda, of surveys is that the marijuana 30-day use rate is fast approaching the alcohol 30-day mm -hmm. use rate. And so for myriad reasons, our youth um, are using more marijuana the primary reasons that we know in our field is the perception of harm for marijuana with youth has gone down. And when the perception of harm goes down, use rates go up. Mm -hmm. I share with my community that the perception of harm with tobacco with uh, juniors in our survey is nearly 97% and our tobacco use rate is about 6%. The perception of harm with marijuana, somewhere around 60%. And 
and our use rate is, you know, almost uh, 26% for 30 day for collectively for the high school. So we follow the national trend of when perception of harm goes down, use rates go up. Our youth tell us that in Massachusetts with decriminalization in 2008 and then marijuana legalized for medical use in 2013 and then our recent uh, passage of marijuana for recreational use has definitely impacted our youth perception of harm mm -hmm. uh, of marijuana. They feel and freely share that perhaps you know, our community thinks of it as medicine or um, it's not illegal. So marijuana, using our data, uh, youth use rates are, are nearing 30-day alcohol. So we use those facts to target our work. The challenge with marijuana is that the access will follow, as has with alcohol, the more access youth have, the more they will use. Mm -hmm. um, again, we follow tobacco. When we started to limit the access to tobacco and, and not allow it in pharmacies and, and um, limit our alcohol permits in our town, cap the number of permits, um, and do compliance checks on our licensees, that combination of strategies limited access to youth and adults resulting in the lowest smoking rates in, in Needham in, in Massachusetts. So we look nationally and state level, impacting um, when you make a substance more available and then through social media and advertising normalize the, the use, that will um, make use rates go up. In our work, Amanda, we've been looking in Massachusetts at Colorado and Oregon mm -hmm. and Washington, and we are seeing um, these prevention facts play out, right. impacting it. the availability impacts youth use. Yeah. So now it's really not something we can dispute. What we're doing in prevention is really trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a comprehensive marijuana education and prevention program in Massachusetts. So based on our data, we're responding to the law and the availability and trying to educate youth and parents to the health harms of marijuana, particularly um, value, validated through the research and science of experts uh, like Dr. John Knight at Children's Hospital and Dr. Sion Harris, uh, Nora Volko through the National Institute of Drug Abuse that shows adolescent brain development, mm -hmm. you know, not being complete till the age of 25 and the impact that marijuana has on the developing brain. The potency has increased significantly in 20 years. So we're very concerned about youth use of marijuana uh, due to the fact the THC levels are high and the brain is still developing. We're seeing um, validated incidents of increases of depression, anxiety with marijuana use, and we are working diligently to 
do two things to limit access and availability to marijuana by youth, which is going to be challenging mm -hmm. because we have marijuana medical dispensaries opening. They're selling candy and, and different products that, that youth um, have access to. And also with the recreational stores opening in July. So right. we're trying to educate and at the same time limit the access in our communities um, so that we can intercept rising youth use rates. Something interesting, when you talk about the access, um, I know that in Massachusetts we have, we're allowed to charge, I think it's 3% um, of the uh, recreational revenue to be able to go back into communities. So I was speaking with a local community and they have a host agreement uh, to for $500,000 every year, uh, which is what they're projecting as 3% of the marijuana, uh, recreational marijuana industry's revenue, which is $17 million a year to get $500,000. And $17 million worth of marijuana in a community and to have the idea that youth would not get access to that. So a lot of times I'll have the community will say to me, well, this is supposed to be 21. And I explained to them that the two drugs that are legal now, both alcohol and tobacco, tend to be the most used drugs by youth because they're easiest to access. And when we go back to the science, you know, increased access increases youth use. And again, $17 million worth of marijuana in this community for $500,000 um, a year. And something else that you brought up too is an increased level of potency uh, of marijuana. We have a local recovery high school uh, right over in the next town of Brockton. And I spoke with the director the other day and I don't remember the, the, um, the measurement that he used, but he said that we drug test all of our students. And a couple of years ago, we would see young people in and they would drug test at a rate of three or 400, whatever the measurement is from THC in their system. He said, yesterday I had a young man in and his drug test came back and his level was at a 5,000. So the difference between two to 300 increased now THC level of 5,000, that's just such a big drastic difference. Um, from what we've seen in the past. So increased potency, increased availability, um, and just I think it's important for communities to understand all the other lenses, you know, to look through rather than just money. Mm -hmm. We have some really great survey data, Amanda, about um, driving under the influence of marijuana and what the youth see as um, the perception of risk and we're trying to educate them on that too, um, because right now there's no road test that's subjective as right. there is for alcohol with a breathalyzer. Um, and so we're very concerned about our road safety. Sure. Um, with the increased access, we understand clearly that the law has passed and mm -hmm. we, are, we are now focusing on what we can do around prevention, sure. education, and impacting access to youth. Well, Carol, this has been a fascinating conversation, 
and I can't wait to continue to hear about all the great work you're doing, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast in the future to just kind of hear what's continued to happen, and uh, thank you for all your great work. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.